So good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Pastor Dan, or Dan Koch, if you're new to SOAR. Welcome. Glad you're here. Um, we're going to continue walking through the gospel according to Luke. We're going to be in chapter 12 this morning, and we're going to read verses 35 through 48. So if you don't mind, go ahead and turn there. Um, and while you're turning there, let me set the stage by way of a comparison, I guess. Um, in 1996, deliberate pause there for the young people over here because, you know, they weren't born at that time. But in 1996, the hip-hop group, the Fugees, released a track entitled Ready or not, somebody's a Fuji fan. That's good. I didn't, I didn't miss you. I got you. I'm with you. But they released a track that year that was entitled Ready or Not. And it, um, Lauren Hill sang the hook. And I'm not Lauren Hill. And Lauren Hill can sing. I mean, that girl can sing, right? And, uh, she may have had a conversion to Christ too at some point, um, afterwards. But anyway, the hook goes like this, ready or not, here I come, you can't hide, I'm going to find you and make you love me. Now, this was a hip-hop group that wrote this track, right? And so the premise behind it was that they were bursting onto the scenes as a new group and they were going to take over the music industry. And in the process, they were going to expose all of the artists who were capitalizing on rapping about violence and perversion, and that they would become the darlings, the new darlings of the hip-hop industry. So they were speaking to two groups, the artists and the fans. And they said, ready or not, here I come. I'm going to find you. You can't hide. I'm going to find you, and I'm going to make you love me. Now, did the Fugees make good on their promise? No, they didn't. Because some of you guys don't even know who they are, right? But today's passage, Jesus talks about coming, and no one will be able to hide, and he will come, and he will make good on his promises. And so we're going to read about that in the passage. And I've entitled this passage, Always, or this teaching, Always Ready. Because he is going to come. And he will make good on his promises, unlike the Fugees. So without further ado, let's read the passage. Beginning in verse 35. So stay dressed for action. And keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, 
for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant to, who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise that you will come, Lord, at a time where we least expect it. But Lord, we pray that because of this word and this teaching today, we would be further encouraged to be ready, always ready for your appearing. And I pray, God, you would help me and help us during this time to embrace this call to always be ready. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So this passage is about the second coming, right? Jesus gets into the second coming a bit. And in this passage, he wants us to be aware of something. What does he want us to be aware of? He wants us to be aware of the fact that we cannot know, won't know when he will return. But we are expected to be ready for his return. We don't know when, but we are to be ready. And that's important. We are to be ready for his return. We are not to exhaust ourselves trying to predict or figure out when he will return, but we are to be ready for his return. And so this morning, we're going to unpack that. What does it mean to be ready for his return? Well, first, we're going to talk about, for a brief moment, some of the conversation surrounding the nature of his second coming or his second advent, because that has divided the church in about four different camps. And that can become such a, a divisive issue for many. It can become um, an issue that, that shapes a person's view of Christianity and their walk with the Lord in such a way that may not be honoring to the Lord. So we want to first look at that because I think that will help us in the process of being ready. Amen? You can say amen to the fact that you hope that I will do what I said I will do. <laughs> and so there are four different views on the millennium. And millennium is a reference to the thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. You can find that in Revelation chapter 20. And when we talk about the end or the second coming or the study of last things, we are talking in, in more proper theological terms, we're talking about eschatology. It's a big, fancy, $10 word. It just simply means the study of last things. And so 
the church or the Christian community can be divided into four different camps. The first one is dispensational premillennialism. Again, that's a mouthful. I'll explain a little bit about that later. The second camp is the historic premillennialism. Third, postmillennialism. And then the fourth camp, amillennialism. Pay attention to the prefixes. They mean something as it relates to the understanding of the millennium. So dispensational premillennialism. Again, that is a mouthful. But when you think of this camp, think of a strict, literal interpretation of prophecy. So when there is a reference to 70 weeks in Daniel, or if there's a reference to locusts in Revelation, they begin to think of that in terms of modern day um, occurrences. So maybe the locusts are Apache helicopters or something like that. I don't know. But they have a very strict, literal interpretation of prophecy. And they view God as having two distinct redemptive plans, one for Israel and one for the church. Rapture theology um, is prominent within this camp in a different way, in the sense that Christ's second coming will be the rapturing of his church from an intense seven-year world tribulation. So right before there is a seven-year intense world tribulation, Christ will appear and rapture his church from the earth. Okay, and then at the conclusion of this seven-year period of intense tribulation on the earth, Christ will come again and set up his earthly kingdom in Jerusalem and rule over all nations. That is dispensational premillennialism. Now, I didn't address the first part of that title, dispensationalism. That's the idea that God operates in various dispensations throughout history. Pretty obvious one being Israel and the church, right? So we are in the church age. Or another one would be, in terms of the Old Testament, that was the dispensation of law. Right, And now we're in a different dispensation. But moving on, we get to historic premillennialism. There we have a mixture of literal and symbolic interpretation of prophecy. Um, historic premillennialists, they differ from dispensationalists in the sense that they view the church as the fulfillment of Israel. There is, for the historic premillennialists, there is a time of great apostasy and tribulation, and that occurs right before Christ returns. The kingdom of God is spiritual, it's now, and it will be a physical kingdom upon Christ's return. Again, the rapture occurs right before Christ returns and begins his millennial reign, his thousand year reign. But then after Christ reigns for a thousand years, Satan, who during that time of the thousand year reign has been bound and placed in prison, but at the conclusion of the thousand year reign, Satan is released. And then there is great apostasy, and then Christ comes again for one final judgment. So that is historic premillennialism. Moving on to postmillennialism. Again, pay attention to the prefixes. Post um, postmillennials believe that there that the millennium is not a literal thousand years, but it's simply an era. And that era began when Christ was resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven to be seated on the throne that he is ruling now and that the church is also the fulfillment of Israel. 
and that Christ reigns over the earth through the growth and spread of the gospel and lives being changed. The world becomes more Christianized, and as the world becomes more and more Christianized, Christ returns. And then at his return, he, re- he judges the wicked, and he brings the saints into their eternal state. And so the second coming is after the millennium. A final and fourth camp, millennialism. Again, paying attention to the prefixes, millennialists believe that there is, again, no literal millennium period. But for them, the millennium itself represents the time of Christ being resurrected and appointed as Lord and King. And that the church is the fulfillment of Israel. That the kingdom is a spiritual reality that the church partakes of by faith. And that the second coming is the consummation of the kingdom of God on earth. The difference between the post and the amillennialists is that the post believe that they have a, a task to Christianize the world. And the amillennialists believe that they, they, that may not happen. They simply say the world will probably get darker and the church will get lighter as time unfolds. Now, again, these are four different camps. The church tends to fall into one of these four camps. At SOAR, we do not make this a primary doctrine for our church. We believe the second coming is important, but we understand that there is some diversity of viewpoint among um, very prominent theologians, past, present, and, um, well, past and present, right? The future hasn't happened yet, right? And, but we will say this, though, that there are some of these viewpoints are a bit wacky and I think you can get caught up in trying to decipher things in a way in which God hasn't really intended us to. I mean, Jesus was quite clear. He will, uh, he will come back at a time when you least expect it, when you do not know, a time that you will not know, and that only the Father knows. And so why should we then exhaust ourselves trying to figure that out, right? We shouldn't. And so that's where for us as a church, we're not really wanting to die on either one of these hills, but we will stand with the rest of the church and saying that we all can agree on this, that Christ is returning, that Christ is returning and that we ought to pray Maranatha prayers. Oh, Lord, come. And that we are to anticipate and hasten the day of the Lord's return. We are to do those things, and we believe that Jesus Christ is king and that he is seated to the right hand of the Father, as Psalm 110 says, that he is Lord. And even as we sang that he, um, and uh, the kings will bow before him, we believe those things to be true. We take him at his word. He is trustworthy. He is unlike that hip-hop group, the Fugees making a promise that they could not fulfill. He is faithful. He will fulfill his promise. He will return when we do not know. It has been 2,000 years since he gave this teaching. It may be another 2,000 years before he returned, or it may not. We do not know. But we know that he is faithful and trustworthy. Why do we know this? Because he promised to rise from death, and he did. He did. He rose from the grave. In fact, the scripture says that in in 1 Corinthians 15 that more than 500 eyewitnesses can attest to the fact that he rose from the grave. So when he says that he will return, we believe him. 
When? We do not know. But we have a responsibility to be ready, always. Always ready for our Lord. Because that's what servants of the Lord do. They are ready for His appearing. And so in our passage this morning, when we looked at Luke 12, there Jesus begins the passage by saying, stay dressed for action in verse 35 and keep your lamps burning. Now, when he says, stay dressed for action, this is without a doubt a reference to the exodus from Egypt. So in Exodus 12, verse 11, as God is getting ready to deliver his people from Egypt, from over 400 years of bondage, he is delivering them from Egypt to bring them into the promised land. And it's going to take place at night. And they are to eat this Passover meal. God tells them to, to fasten their belts and their, get their sandals on their feet, their staff in their hand as they eat this meal, as they are about to, to taste their salvation and deliverance. And so Jesus undoubtedly is playing on that word when he says, stay dressed for action for your master will come in the night. Likewise, Ephesians 6 speaks of the full armor of God and being and, and girding ourselves up with the, the with the with, with truth and righteousness. And so when the Lord says, be ready, stay dressed for action here, it is it is the call to to have our lives always being adorned with the righteousness of Christ. It is the call for our lives to always be the pleasant aroma of Christ. Let me break that down for you. Some people consider themselves to be night persons and some people consider themselves to be morning persons. What happens when a night person has to get up early in the morning to go to work? They typically show up a bit groggy, not in the best attitude, not willing to engage or talk as much, right? Well, this passage says that you are to be dressed for action. You are to be adorned in Christ. So what do we say to our Lord? Lord, I'm not really a morning person. So when I show up at my job early in the morning, don't expect me to be the pleasant aroma of Christ in that place because I'm not really a morning person. Lord, you know me. Now, your master expects you to be dressed in him. So whatever I got to do, I got to die to myself. I've got to engage with the Lord, commune with the Lord, give myself to the Lord so that I'm dressed and ready for action. Always ready to please my Lord. Always ready. Could you imagine a Christian coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, I didn't preach the gospel that morning at work because I just wasn't in a good mood. It ain't going to fly. Always dressed for action. The righteousness of Christ. The pleasant aroma of Christ being your life. But secondly, he says, keep your lamps burning. 
Keep your lamps burning. Now we know that there is a reference there in Matthew 5 where Jesus says that you are not to take the lamp and put it under a bushel or under a bed. Right? And then there's also a reference in Matthew 25 of the five wise bridesmaids and the foolish bridesmaids whose lamps ran out of oil. So when he says... Keep your lamps burning. He's calling us to a zeal for the gospel. Always having a zeal for the gospel. It annoys me when Christians think that they have outgrown the gospel or when they are bored with the gospel. It annoys me because they don't fully understand the gospel, the implications of the good news. It's, it's an incredible treasure trove of wisdom and understanding for life. You realize your New Testament was Paul expounding upon that good news. Peter expounding upon that good news. John and the other writers talking about that good news. And we're bored. Perhaps we're bored because we have a false understanding of the gospel, a, reduction, a reductionistic view of the gospel, meaning it's truncated. We've made it smaller. It's a ticket to heaven when I die. Nothing else matters. So I'm not ready when the Lord returns because I got my ticket, so I'm ready, kind of, but really not ready, not ready to be the aroma of Christ, not ready to faithfully serve Christ, not ready with the zeal of, for the word of God and the gospel. He says, keep the lamps burning. That's one of the reasons why we take communion every, every week. For some people, they get lulled asleep during that time. It's just ritual. It's just going through the motions for them. And for others of us, we're being shaped by it. We're being prepared by it. This is what our Lord has done for us. And every time we taste of that sacred meal, we are reminded of the great banquet we will join him in later. He says, keep your lamp burning Zeal for the gospel. Zeal for the word of God. Praying without ceasing. That's spiritual readiness. That's spiritual alertness. And he goes on to say in that passage, Verse 38, that if, he, if his master comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Now, I want you to hold on to that because those are the faithful servants. Throughout the passage, we get exposed to the wicked servants, and then later on, we're exposed to the ignorant servant. But what I want you to, to hold on to is that idea of the faithful servant. Don't lose that one. It's easy to be offended by what happens to the wicked servants. Cut to pieces, Jesus said. Jesus, you're supposed to be a nice guy. 
He says, cut them to pieces. That's what he's going to do when he returns. But, he says it may be in the second watch or in the third watch. What we do know, it's going to be at a time when you least expect it. And so when he says second or third watch, he's saying in the middle of the night. Why is that relevant for a servant? Well, in this day and age, the people there, they are quite accustomed to what happens to slaves and servants. And if a master was called away to a wedding banquet, that servant couldn't say, well, I'm off the clock tonight. Master isn't home. I'm going to bed. Good luck getting yourself in the house, master. He couldn't do that. You see, because the slave, he didn't have the freedom, right, to act on his own will. He was placed in subjection to his master's will. So if the master left the house, I can't sleep till he comes home. I can't not be found waiting for my master when he arrives. Jesus is speaking the language of that culture and that day and age where people understood exactly what he meant. But in the middle of the night is when the slave might be the most tempted to want to sleep, to want to be at ease, not think about what he is called to do. So he says, I'm going to come at the time when men of low character who lack discipline, who lack zeal for me, least expected. But the faithful servant, even in the middle of the night, he's looking for kingdom opportunities. He's looking for opportunities to honor and glorify his master. And for some of us, hidden in plain sight are kingdom opportunities that we sleepwalk by every single day. It's because we're not ready, but we're called to be ready. We are to look for those opportunities. We're moving on in the passage. Jesus, talking about this idea of coming in an hour that we least expect. He does something that, for many of us, it makes us, again, makes us uncomfortable, right? When he talks about the master in this analogy, in these parables, we know that he's referencing himself, right? We know that he's talking about himself. But then he goes on to say, That when, in verse 39, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. Who's he calling a thief? He's calling himself the thief. Is it because he's sinning? No. No. He's driving home a point. What is that point? Don't miss out on what's most valuable in life. You see, last week, Pastor Mike talked about anxiety for things of this life, clothing, status, how we appear before man, our comforts. And that anxiety 
shapes and forms us and makes us unready. Is that a word? I look at my wife. She helps me with my English. And Jesus said, if you're in that place where you're not ready, then like a thief in the night, I'm going to come. And that which is supposed to be most valuable to you, eternal life, eternity with me, Jesus. That me, Jesus, not me, Jesus. Eternity with him, forever with him. You'll lose it because you were found unfaithful, unprepared, not ready. And the thief doesn't come at the time when the little Christian wants to play Christian and show everyone how cool they are, flashing it all over social media, the good deeds that I've done. No, it's in the hour when you don't feel like it or tired, tempted to compromise, tempted to sin, is when he may come. That's what he says. You know, that brings me to a subject that I really wasn't planning to touch on this morning, but I do want to say something briefly about it. There's this whole concept of deconstructionism in the faith where young people are tearing down and tearing apart their Christian faith. And supposedly they're, they're doing this so that they might possibly find truth or better foundation for themselves. And no, it, it's not working out that way. Many of them are abandoning the faith because of it. It becomes the door for them to leave Christ. But, but I would say to those who, who think that that's a good thing, that deconstruction is, is a good thing, that are you not putting yourself in a position of being unready for the Lord when he returns, when you do that? You see, deconstruction, tearing down, right? Ripping apart pulling apart, I think that's a dangerous thing. Re-examining, right, thinking through what I believe, I think that's healthy. That's good. We want to be more biblical. We want to be more sound. We want to be more faithful. We give ourselves to, to examining the faith and whether or not we're in the faith, but we don't take apart the faith and destroy the foundation, and think that we're going to come back to it. That's a presumption we shouldn't be comfortable living with. Anyway, I, I, I digress. He's going to come in the middle of the night, in the time when we least expect it. Thirdly, moving on in this passage, Spiritual alertness is serving Christ in a manner worthy of Christ. Now, this is where Jesus gets to Peter's question, right? Peter asks a question. Peter, in verse 41, says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? I love it, right? Peter, he's got 
a mouth shaped like a foot, right? I mean, why would he ask that question, right? Like, like Jesus, can I exempt myself from these things? Kind of question, right? Should I be worried about this? Or, or should I, you know, can I, can I be exempt? Or, you know, surely you want this heat on them, right? Not me, right? Jesus just tells the same parable again with more details, right? He says that truly I say to you, right? Uh, I'm sorry, in verse 14 he says, and the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? He says, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So yes, Peter, I'm talking to you. Yes, Peter, I'm talking to them. And then he says in verse 44, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions, that faithful servant. He says, and if that servant says to himself, He says, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That's going to hurt. If if you were wondering, that's going to be painful. In verse 47, it says, and that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. And then he ends it with everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Jesus assigns culpability in proportion to the degree of the knowledge that one had. The servant that knew his master's will, but didn't live in a manner worthy of his master, who didn't treat his brothers and sisters well. By the way, that is a testimony of the Spirit of God in you that you love the church. Not the building, the people, that you love the church. And so Christians who constantly struggle with being in relationship with other Christians, brothers and sisters, that is a terrible symptom that you need a gospel cure for. But he says that wicked servant who did that, would receive a severe beating. Again, the people of that day understood these things. They saw servants beaten for not pleasing their masters. And so that's the wicked servant. But then he talks about an ignorant servant, one who didn't quite know his master's will, but he still received a beating. He didn't receive as many blows as the one who knew, but he still received a beating. There's a 
call right there in that passage for you and I to not be ignorant of the will of the Lord. That, yes, you may not know some things about God. You may not consider yourself a theologian, which I disagree with you on. Because as soon as you step in the arena of having thoughts about God, you have become a theologian. You may not be a very good one, but you are a theologian. That's where A.W. Tozer says that whatever uh, the most important thing about a man is what he thinks about God. And R.C. Sproul says everyone is a theologian. Because as soon as you start thinking about God, you become one. And so there is no room for us to be in a continued and long state of ignorance about the will of God. Christian, read your Bible to know and to understand your God, to know and to understand the depths of his love for you, the wisdom of God, the mysteries and the treasures surrounding your salvation in the kingdom of God and how you're called to represent him in this life, read to understand and to know your master's will. And if you don't understand some things, there are plenty of tools and resources to help you. To help you get it. Now, we want to help you get it, and we'll help guide you and direct you in the right places. There are some bad places you want to stay out of. But by and large, there is an opportunity for you to know more, to understand more, that you will not remain spiritual babes forever, that you will mature in the faith. I'm talking about Ephesians 4 there. So you have the wicked servant, you have the ignorant servant, but again, I told you to hold on to one other servant that we can often Overlook, and that is the faithful servant. And that's in verse 37 where Jesus says that blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Wow. That really blew my mind when I first began to take that in as a community group last week as we were looking at this passage. Immediately we saw Jesus applying this in the Last Supper when he began to wash the feet of his disciples. Do you know how counter this is to the thinking of the world at that time and in our day and age? That a king would honor his subjects in that way, lowering himself to that of a slave to serve and honor his own subjects. We are called to always be ready to honor Christ because it's his joy, it's his honor to welcome us into his kingdom and to serve us in his eternal kingdom. We're called to always be ready because our Lord desires to bless us in his kingdom, to honor us in his kingdom. Church, this is way more important than trying to read the newspaper or listen to your favorite media outlet and trying to predict when Christ will return. Getting 
this point about always being ready to honor him. Always being ready to be the pleasing aroma of Christ. Always being ready to give your life for the kingdom of God. Do you know for the Christian, our retirement plan is eternity, not this life. The American dream is get a nice nest egg, put your feet up, and, you know, chill out for the rest of your life. Live your paradise here. Not for the Christian. You know, as we age and, and our capacity shrinks and our abilities diminish a bit, uh, yeah, we, our roles may change. But for the rest of our lives, every breath we have on this planet, it is to honor and glorify Him. We will retire in the eternal kingdom and our Lord will come and He will bless us and it will be His joy and delight to serve us. This Jesus must be our treasure. This Jesus must be our delight. We can't give ourselves to the anxiety of life, or worrying about this thing and that thing in life. We can't be consumed things that aren't eternal in nature. Jesus must be our treasure. We must give ourselves to honoring him. And you know what? If you're in this place this morning, maybe you've realized you've, you, you've fallen short. Maybe you've been the lazy or the ignorant servant. There's hope for you. God doesn't want you to leave this place feeling condemned about where you're at. No. He wants you to turn to Him now. He wants you to acknowledge that you've sinned against Him. But he also wants you to receive his love and forgiveness and begin the process of being his servant. Ready to honor him. Ready to be a pleasing aroma for Christ. And so, if you're in that place, I invite you to just pray with me this morning. In fact, I invite all of us to just pray. Let's pray for any of our brothers and sisters that may be in that place this morning. That God would open their eyes to see. That now is the time not to take on the, the cloak of condemnation, but to put on the garment of praise, of forgiveness of sin, and a new opportunity to glorify Him, being ready to glorify Him in all things. And even when you fall short, to know that you can get back up again that it doesn't diminish His love for you, that it doesn't change His mind about you, but that you are in a process of growth and transformation to be that faithful servant, always ready to please Him. Amen? Amen. So let's pray. Lord, I thank You for this good news, that You are God who gave Your life, that we might be forgiven of our sin, brought into Your eternal kingdom as sons and daughters that it's your delight and joy to greet us and to, and, and to serve us with this privilege, blessing. God, we thank you for this, Lord. And I pray, God, for any of my brothers and sisters in this place, God. I've been there before in life. 
But God, I simply was not living in a state of readiness. God, I pray, God, that if there be brothers and sisters in this place, Lord, that they would hear your voice this morning and respond to that call to be faithful in you and in your kingdom. God, that they would know that your love for them is to call them in, not to beat them down, but to raise them up as sons and daughters, not to spit them out. God, if they'll hear your voice this morning, Lord, I pray that they would hear your voice, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.